0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter twenty three, verses twenty six to thirty one. We're going to look at uh, Jesus on the way to the cross this morning. We've been spending the season of Lent working through uh, the the final moments of of Christ's life here on Earth. His his uh, arrest, trial, um, and then and then his crucifixion on the on the cross. His last few few hours it zooms in on Christ's. Um, agony, the punishment that he endured on our behalf, in our place, for our sin. Traditionally, for, for centuries now, Lent has kind of been the season that the church would kind of devote to fasting and praying and mourning, um, you know, contemplating the suffering and death of Jesus, and then uh, giving space for Christians to be sad about it. And that is uh, exactly what what this text here in Luke 23 is all about. It's kind of looking at the suffering and death of Jesus and then, uh, and then looking and giving, giving us space to be sad about it. Look, Watching and observing as people who were there on that day were sad about Christ and his death on the cross and kind of inviting us into it. So I'm going to read verses 26 to 31, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in and kind of take a look at it. It says, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep instead for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and blessed are the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray we um, ask your, Lord, on these next few minutes, Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to come here with us and to speak to us. We ask you to convict us of our sin so that, we, so that we might repent of it. We ask you to assure us of your grace so that we might rejoice in it. We pray that you would use these next few minutes to just work mightily in our hearts and to work mightily in uh, in our church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yes, sir. Probably not. So, let's take a look. I am. But can you not hear me? That's okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. If we, if we don't get the recording, it's not, not a problem. But yeah, I'm, I'm green on here. Okay, so, we'll start with verse 26. And take a look. It says, as they led him away. At this point, Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, tried, convicted, condemned to die, right? Judas Iscariot, he'd been uh, abandoned by all of his disciples. Um, he'd been interrupted in the middle of his uh, prayer to God. He'd been arrested by uh, a gang of men, a gang of soldiers with swords and clubs and weapons and torches. He'd been dragged away uh, to a trial in front of the religious leaders of Israel in the middle of the night, which was uh, not legal, but they did it anyway. He'd been uh, denied by Peter, his right-hand man. He'd been taken uh, in front of Pontius Pilate, um, had a trial in front of him. Pilate knew that he was innocent. Pilate knew that he should acquit him, but he didn't do it because he kind of, uh, you know, was, was swayed by the, the cries of this uh, bloodthirsty mob. He'd been taken to a trial in front of Herod. Herod didn't particularly care about Jesus or getting justice for Jesus. Herod cared about uh, being entertained and being uh, impressed and being wowed by some sort of sign. Jesus, by this point, had been mocked and scoffed at and treated shamefully. He's been uh, beaten. He's uh, bloody. His, His back has been severely lacerated. He's uh, suffered severe injury to his internal organs. He's traumatized. He's in, he's in shock. And now he's being, uh, you know, led by, coerced by these guards to the site where he's going to be crucified. And the custom with, Rome, we're going to look at crucifixion uh, in more detail in the weeks to come. Um, but suffice it to say, crucifixion in the the Roman society was uh, horrific. It was worse than any Horror movie that you could possibly uh, imagine it was uh, in t- you know uh, capital punishment today you know lethal and you know like we we go to great lengths to to try as best as we can to make sure that it 's not cruel or unusual, but this was intentionally cruel and, in, and intentionally as cruel and as humiliating and as painful as it could possibly be. And so it started with this, uh, you know, right, with, with being led to the site where you're going to be crucified, having to carry the instrument on which you were about to be crucified. It was intended to be physically and psychologically uh, j- just y- humiliating and, and um, yeah, torturous, right? Physically, because you've just been, you know, Jesus was a big, strong man. He was, Jesus had had likely thrown around pieces of wood much larger than this crossbeam. The crossbeam was huge. It was, uh, you know, like a like a six-by-six six post or, or bigger, you know, like a small tree trunk essentially upwards of 100 pounds. Um, but nevertheless, Jesus uh, was a large, strong man. He was a carpenter by trade, so he had very likely— carried wood much larger than this and yet condition that he's in in his weakened state he's dehydrated he's in 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 shock he's delirious he's having difficulty carrying this this column but again they they um intentionally would make you carry the instrument that you were about to be executed on just as you know you know like you read about nazi germany and they would kind of do all of these like you know just terrible things to people in concentration camps they would you know not just not just uh, you know kill them and put them in mass graves, but they would abuse them and kind of engage in psychological uh, torture and humiliation uh, on the outset of it to make it as, as bad as it could possibly be. And that's kind of what this, this uh, custom of the crossbeam was, similar to making someone, uh, you know, giving someone a shovel and making them dig their own grave and kind of experiencing that psychological torture as they are inching ever closer to the end of their life. And so they put this crossbeam on Jesus' back. They have him carry uh, the cross beam to the site where he's about to be crucified. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. They laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. This is... About all we know of Simon of Cyrene, his only mention in scripture is here, and then parallel passages in Matthew and Mark are synoptic gospels. Um but yeah, Simon of Cyrene, he was um he's from from Cyrene, which is a region off of the northern coast of Africa, modern day Libya, which would have been several hundred miles. You can flip back to the to the Luke passage, I don't think we're gonna be in that mark one for another few minutes, but um yeah, from uh from, from modern day Libya, several hundred miles away from Jerusalem, he had likely traveled that distance specifically for the Passover, just like everyone else who was there. And so he is kind of grabbed, uh, grabbed by, um, he's seized, right? He's seized in, in the crowd and forced to carry Jesus's cross, right? Big, strong, armed Roman guards. If they tell you to do something, you, you do it. There's not really any arguing or any uh, debating or negotiating with them. So Simon of Cyrene is uh, is seized. He's forced to carry Jesus's cross to him. Now again, this is his only mention here, and then at the crucifixion site in Matthew and Mark. But if we kind of do some detective work and look into it a little more, we can kind of determine some uh, some some uh, some. We can kind of paint a mosaic if we kind of look at all the places where he's mentioned and kind of piece some clues together. So if we flip to Mark chapter fifteen. This is Mark's mention of Simon of Cyrene. They said they compelled a pastor by Simon of Cyrene who is, carry, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So we get that extra little detail that, that Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, most scholars think that this is, at the very least, what's going on here is Mark is uh, inserting some ancillary details into his account to, so that uh, his hearers, his readers, can check up on what he's on what he's saying, right? Um, you know, almost like saying this this really happened. I'm not making it up. And if you don't believe me, here are some some references. You can go find these people, and you can go ask them. Go ask Alexander. Go ask Rufus. They'll tell you what their father experienced on the day when Jesus uh, died on the on the cross. Similar to how in First Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says, I think we might have this. Um, he says, then, uh, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul's saying, uh, yeah, I'm, this is not, you don't have to take my word for it. This is verifiable, right? This isn't like, um, you know, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree that like the guy who wrote that story, you know, happened, you know, decades, centuries later and, and was, you know, went on record saying I made that up just kind of, it was, a, you know, no one can really, you know, the longer you get from an event, the more that it's difficult to determine fact from fiction because the people that were there aren't there anymore. So Paul and Mark uh, in, these, in these verses are basically saying, we're still writing within years, decades of when it happened, and the people that were there are still alive. You can go and you can talk to them. So most scholars agree that that's what Mark is doing in Mark 15. He's saying, here are some people that you can go check my sources to see if this really happened this way. But what some scholars also think is happening is that Alexander and Rufus, like these people are known to the, the Christians in the early church that Mark's letter was being circulated among. They, they were believers. They were followers of Jesus. So, so their testimony had a particular weight because the people that, were gonna, that would read the Gospel of Mark would know them and know of their faith in Christ. So... If we, take, if we take Mark 15 and we realize that, that Alexander and Rufus, the children of Simon of Cyrene, grew up to be uh, worthy and trustworthy people in the early church, right? It stands to reason that Simon of Cyrene, their father, is the one who taught them the gospel. He's the one who discipled them and raised them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord like, Luke, like, like Ephesians 6 commands. If that's the case, it's entirely possible that, that Simon of Cyrene can trace his story of his faith back to this day when Jesus was going to die on the cross and when he was seized out of the crowd to be, uh, to be a part of that, of that event. And not only that, but if we know, we can have this picture of Simon of Cyrene and his children are Alexander and Rufus. If we look at Romans chapter 16, verse 13, we see Rufus mentioned again. Paul is right, Paul is kind of giving these personal greetings at the end of his letter uh, to the church in Rome. Tell this person I said hello, tell this person that I said thank you, these kinds of things. And he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also greet his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, we can't be sure, right? We don't know that this Rufus here is the same Rufus from Mark 15, who was Simon of Cyrene's son, We don't know for sure that the mother of Rufus that's mentioned here would would theoretically be the wife of Simon of of Cyrene, but it stands to reason that that's the case. I tend to think that it is because I think that the Holy Spirit probably arranged for this particular detail to be added in these two places and for these people to kind of line up in the New New Testament. So it's almost like Paul is saying, right, uh, commend Rufus, and, right, and, uh, like, let, let me speak highly of Rufus, who's a leader in the church, right, Rufus, who, um, you know, has, has grown up to be a disciple of Christ, and to be a leader in the church, but also commend his mother, right, who has been like a mother to me, right, Rufus's mother, uh, Simon's wife, has been, she opted me, as it were, as her child, she kind of took me under her wing, a caring, nurturing, older female figure who helped me become the man that I am today. So if you kind of put the mosaic together, you've got Simon of Cyrene, who is only mentioned in this one spot, but we have no reason to think that he was a believer or, or you know, interested in Jesus prior to this day. But we do know that, that decades later, his, uh, his, his wife, uh, the person who is very likely his wife, and his two sons loved Jesus, They're following Jesus. They are commended by the Apostle Paul and by Mark, who was very close with the Apostle Peter, as being faithful, godly members of the early church. And so we look at Simon and we're thinking, okay, this is probably a man who, yeah, trusted in Christ, loved his wife, taught the gospel to his wife, saw his wife come to faith in Christ, loves his kids, raises his kids, teaches the gospel to his kids, sees his kids come to faith, disciples them and raises them up and that can all be traced back to this moment here on the way to the cross when Simon is seized and when Simon is forced to follow behind Jesus and carry carry the cross which incidentally is like is it literally fulfilling the exact words of Christ in Matthew 16 right he says if anyone wants to be my disciple he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Which is exactly what Simon of Cyrene is doing here. Right? Asserting himself would be to say, I'm not carrying that cross. I don't have anything to do with it. I'm going to go my other way. I'm going to do my own thing. Leave me alone. Denying himself is going to say, sure, I'll, I'm, going to, I'm going to do it. Even though I have no obligation, I have no skin in this game, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to carry this cross and I'm going to follow behind Jesus. The exact picture of what Jesus said discipleship in the Christian life looks like. So Simon Simon is, is, uh, is meant to be an encouragement. He's meant to be a picture, I think, to us, both of what it looks like to trust in Christ and follow Christ in discipleship, but also of the potential impact that trusting in Jesus and following Jesus can have not only on your life, but on the life of your family, the life of your kids, right? The life of your, the, the legacy that you can leave for generations uh, into, into the future, right? If you're, if you're a believer, and if your parents were believers, praise God for that. Praise God that, that God uh, saved them. Praise God that, that he used them in your life to teach you the gospel, Right and, and now God is calling you to take this legacy that, that has existed for you know one or more generations in your family and kind of move that forward. He's, he's calling you to embrace the faith that you learned from your parents as your own. He's calling you to teach that faith to your children and to your children's children. God, God wants you to be a part of an intergenerational family legacy of worshiping and serving and teaching others about Jesus. If, you're, if your parents were believers, that's what God wants from you. If your parents were not believers, then Simon of Cyrene is an example of what the grace of God can do in your life and in your family. Simon of Cyrene shows us in no uncertain terms that that none of us, regardless of who our parents were or their parents were, regardless of what kinds of generational patterns of besetting sins existed or held previous generations of our family in captivity, regardless of all of that, you can be a pivotal turning point, right? Where you zoom out and look at your family tree and you look at all the generations and here are generations of unbelievers Marked by, you know, unrepentant sin, alcoholism, abuse, greed... Pro, whatever it is, right? And that's the trajectory that your family's on. And by all accounts, the world would expect that you're going to further, you know, you're going to take another step in that same direction because you're simply living out what was taught to you when you were young and impressionable. Statistically speaking, that's the path that you will walk on. But Simon of Cyrene shows us that, that God can save a person in the midst of this, uh, you know, intergenerational trajectory that he's on and redirect that trajectory. No matter who you are, no matter who your parents were, who their parents were, what the trajectory of your family is, you can instill a trajectory of godliness. You can be a turning point for your family. You can go to church. You can bring your spouse to church. They can meet Christ. You can bring your kids to church. They can meet Christ. You can teach your kids about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, a new legacy can be uh, created. So don't. Don't underestimate, right? Simon of Cyrene tells us, he's an example to us. He's an illustration showing us to not underestimate the significance of your faith. Don't underestimate the the life-changing, family-changing, legacy-changing potential that your faith might have for generations to come. Verse 27, it says, Then there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. So we've got some new characters on the scene. Ever and up until now has been men, right? It's been the, the apostles, it's been Peter, it's been Judas, it's been uh, Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and the religious leaders. It's been all, all men. There's a reason why uh, a lot of the stories in the Bible... Uh, are mostly, you know, ha- have men as the central figures, it's because it was written in first century Palestine. And the the, the sad reality was that in first century Palestine, uh, men were considered to be more important and more valuable than than women. Men, right, you, you look at your family, men were considered to be assets, women were considered to be liabilities, right? If you're Men would marry women in large part so that those women could produce for them male offspring, right? The, the goal was we want to have a net, a net gain of – we want the ratio of men to women to be – to kind of tip in the positive over the course of our – right? Your, your wife gets pregnant, and if you find out you're having a son, it's like, this is awesome, someone to carry on our family name, Another strong back to work with me in the fields and build wealth. Another person to hunt and bring in food for the family. And if your wife gave birth to a daughter, he'd say, another mouth to feed. Another person to take care of Till I can find some sucker to unload her on. It's not right. That's just, how, that's just the reality of what first century Palestine, kind of the, the, the culture in uh, Rome and in Israel was in the first century. Women were aborted or left to die in infancy via exposure at much higher rates than, than male children. They were second-class citizens in society. They weren't allowed to testify in court because people uh, thought that women were not capable of telling the truth or they weren't capable of observing things clearly or remembering things and, and you know, representing them later. So women were not thought well of, and yet in the Bible— Women are continually spoken highly of. They are continually, uh, you know, seen as uh, chief characters in so many of the stories, right? There are female heroes in the Old Testament. Right from the very beginning, the Bible makes it clear that that women were created in the image of God just like men were. Jesus' mother is celebrated as a godly woman. Women are the central figures around the death and resurrection of Jesus, When all the men are swayed by the crowd in Luke 23, it's the women that stick with Jesus. It's the women that are sad. In Luke 24, it's the women that discover the empty tomb. So if you hear, you hear someone tell you, right, the Bible is regressive. The Bible is... Uh, patriarchal. The Bible is not. The Bible encourages toxic masculinity. The Bible wants to silence women as they are abused by men. That it is, you know, ceding all of the the power to. The Bible does not have a high view of women. This is not true. The the Bible speaks highly of women. The Bible exalts women. The Bible holds women up as saints and examples from cover, uh, from cover to cover. Jesus himself spoke to women, acknowledged women, taught women, affirmed women as uh, equals, as fellow image bearers of God. The Bible brings dignity to womanhood. It brings dignity to femininity. It brings dignity to motherhood. The Bible views women as uh, absolutely essential to uh, thriving and, and successful families and churches and societies and humanity. Here come these women, and they're mourning. They're lamenting. They're they're crying. They're they're watching the savior that they love, the savior that they trust, the savior that they have been following, the savior who they have been giving of their own money, of their own means to fund his ministry and to to fund his traveling. They're watching him be arrested and lied about, and abandoned, and and condemned, and beaten, and now carried away to slaughter. And they're devastated. And they are crying and they're mourning. And Jesus says to them, "Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and weep for your children." Right? I, I get, I get that you're sad. I get that you're looking at me and at the fate that I am being uh, forced to to endure. I get that that's that's sad that's making you you mourn, but there's something that's even more sad than what is happening to me right now, and that is uh, what's going to happen to you and to the people that you love that's going to be what happens to the the fate of your city, the fate of the city of Jerusalem is even sadder and even more worthy of mourning and grieving than the fate that I'm experiencing right now as as always, Jesus was more concerned for others than he was for himself even. At the very end of his life, he's less concerned with his own suffering and death than he is with the people that he loves and he cares about. So he says, "I'm. Uh, it, it's bad that I'm being crucified. It's bad that I'm being murdered by this by this uh, you know bloodthirsty mob. But this is only the beginning, right? In a few short decades, this entire city is going to be." siege. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be reduced to rubble. In 70 AD, the Roman army is going to invade. It's going to kill everyone that they can get their hands on. Over a million people were killed in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They're going to reduce these buildings to, to rubble. Not one stone will be left on to another. The city that you see as the crown jewel of all of Israel will be destroyed. Josephus is a a historian in the first century. We have a couple of slides with some some of the descriptions that he made of this siege of Jerusalem. He says, as the Roman legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances. Many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins, colonnades, and died miserably as they were defeated. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens. They were weak and unarmed. They were butchered wherever they were caught. Around the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher while Down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top fell down to the the bottom. As soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, Caesar then gave the order that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple. This was the end to which Jerusalem came to. A city otherwise known... I think we have one more. uh, A city... Maybe not. uh, A city otherwise known of great magnificence and mighty fame among all mankind. And truly, the very view itself was a melancholy thing, for those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country in every way. All its trees were cut down. Everyone who had seen it before and then saw it now would lament and mourn, for the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. That Jesus is saying, "Don't don't cry about what's happening to me right now. Cry about that. Cry about what's going to happen to your your children and your your grandchildren." Verse twenty nine. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, "Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed." The Bible, cover to cover, sees children as a blessing, not a a burden. It sees children as a gift from God, right? You might hear from the world today that, you know, kids are noisy or expensive or messy. They're going to increase your carbon footprint. They're going to contribute to overpopulation. You shouldn't have a lot of kids. You should wait before you have kids. Go live your life. Go, you know, enjoy. Get your get your career a little more established before you have kids. If you listen to the world today, you might hear people uh, either imply or outright state that children are a burden rather than a blessing. The Bible sees children as a blessing, right? Right right from the outset, in Genesis 1, God calls his people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage and a reward from the Lord. The man who has a quiver full of children is, is blessed by God. So the Bible says that children are a blessing, and yet right here, Jesus is saying in that day in particular... It's not the the parents who the Lord has blessed with, uh, with children that are going to be considered blessed. It's going to be the barren people who are blessed. The wombs that never bore are blessed. The breasts that never nursed are blessed. Because when the Roman army invades Jerusalem and starts killing everyone and destroying everything, you are going to wish that you didn't have kids. Because if you have kids there will be less of a chance that you can escape, right? There's less of a, you're not as quick, you're not as mobile, that you can't get away. So if you have kids, chances are you're going to die, you're going to watch your kids be killed, and then you're going to be killed. So Jesus says, as sad as this is right now, me being led away to the slaughter on the, the cross, it'd be even more sad for you and for your relatives. Verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. There's a quote from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. In that chapter, uh, Hosea is calling, uh, or in that chapter, God is saying that he is going to punish Israel for their sin. He's going to bring judgment to the nation of Israel for their sin. They've been celebrating and reveling, but one day God is going to put an end to it. They're going to be punished and stricken and destroyed, and it will be so bad that people are going to wish that they were dead. People are going to wish that a mountain would fall on them and crush them to death because the judgment of God is so bad. People are going are gonna to look, they're going to feel, they're going to experience the judgment of God and say, this is so painful, this is so terrible, that I would rather be crushed underneath a massive mountain. That's what Hosea says in chapter 10, verse 8, and it's what the Apostle John also quotes in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. So, Jesus is saying, so Hosea chapter 10, uh, God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment to the nation of Israel for your sin. Jesus uh, attaches that to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD from the nation of Rome. And then in Revelation chapter 6, John likens it to the final judgment of all things that is happening. So it's almost like they're all kind of attached to one another. They're all allusions to one another. They're all shadows of one another. In Revelation 6, John says the people, are, when Jesus returns, when Jesus is bringing final judgment on his enemies, after Jesus saves his people and gathers them to himself once and for all, people are going to be screaming and crying, saying to the mountains and to the rocks, please fall on us, please hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand and endure it. The judge that Hosea was speaking about is going to come on the city of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome. And yet even that is going to be just a, small, a glimmer, just a faint image of, a faint picture of the judgment that's coming on a sinful humanity when, when the terrible wrath of God, when they are confronted by it. You'll wish that you were dead. You'll wish that you were crushed under a huge uh, mountain. And so Jesus is saying, it is sad. What's happening right now, my death on the cross is terribly sad. There's no arguing that. There's no disputing that. But you should also cry for yourself and cry for your children because of judgment and because of the wrath that is coming upon them. And then verse 31, he says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? In other words, I, Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, have been tortured and beaten. I'm going to be hung on a cross, slaughtered between two criminals while my Father turns his face away from me. What is happening right now to me is terrible. And that's what Rome does to one innocent man who represents no threat to them at all. What do you think Rome is going to do to an entire city that they think uh, represents a threat of uprising, that represents a threat to their nation's stability? If these bad things happen now when the wood is green to me, Jesus, what is going to happen when the wood is dry to the city of Jerusalem in a few short decades? If I, Jesus, the righteous son of God who's never done anything wrong, am experiencing this kind of judgment and punishment, what's going to happen to sin who deserve judgment and wrath? What's going to happen to people who are selfish? What's going to happen to people who trample on God's glory with their with their sin. Friends, the, the death of Christ on the cross is terrible. It's horrific. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. But you know what else is bad? What else that we should be just as concerned about is the prospect of spending eternity in hell separated from loving presence of our Heavenly Father, experiencing the full force of His righteous wrath forever and ever. You should be upset by what happened to Jesus and you should also be upset by at the prospect of spending eternity apart from Him. You should be upset by, concerned about, the prospect of people that you know and love spending eternity apart from Him. Jesus came to save sinners. He died for sinners so that they can trust in Him, be reconciled to Him, and save from His wrath in eternity. But the reality is that you deserve, I deserve, we deserve, virtue of our sin against God's perfect holiness, we deserve to suffer under the righteous wrath of God for all of eternity. We deserve to be cast out of His loving presence into its eternal conscious punishment. Every single person who has ever lived, every single person who ever will live is going to do one of two things. Either they are going to Come to Jesus as their Savior, trust in Him, hide in Him, be covered by His righteousness so that when He took their punishment, He paid their penalty, they can experience grace through that or they will stand before Him as their judge, given account to Him for the life that they lived, having sinned and fallen short of His glory, and they will be found guilty and they will be sentenced to suffer under the wrath of God. If that happens, those people will say exactly what these people are saying in verse 30. Right? Say to the mountains, Fall on us. Say to the hills, uh, Cover us. Please kill us so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. I, I encourage you. I exhort you. I beg of you, don't be caught unprepared. Don't go stand before your creator without having prepared for that moment, without having repented of your sin and trusted in Christ to save you. God's judgment is coming. God's wrath is coming. It's inevitable. You cannot escape it. All you can do is prepare for it by trusting in Christ. So Jesus says, don't look at me and weep for me. Look at your own life, look at your own eternity, look at your own soul with a sober mind and be concerned for it and prepare for it by trusting in Christ rather than experiencing the wrath of Christ. Verses 26 to 31 effectively tell us it's Jesus saying to us, it's okay to be sad, But be sad about the right things. Be sad about the things that make God sad. We live in a world that tells us in so many words that it's not okay to be sad. Take this pill. It'll make you happy. Eat at our restaurant. It'll make you happy. Buy our phone. It'll make you happy. You travel to this resort. It will make you happy. The world is constantly bombarding us with the message of sadness is bad. Don't, don't have it. Don't experience it. Keep it at arm's length. Happiness is good. You want to be happy. If you're sad, then, then self-medicate with stuff until you're not sad anymore. If you are sad, don't tell anyone that you're sad because it makes them uncomfortable. They're not going to know how to act around Don't ever be sad and don't ever be honest about the fact that you are sad. It's the message of the world. There are entire denominations within Christianity that are just as allergic to sadness as the world is, right? You're a victor, you're an overcomer. You're a child of the king. God doesn't want his kids to be sad. God wants you to live your best life, free from suffering, the life that you've always wanted. If you're sad, it's because you don't have enough faith. You need to trust God more. You need to name it and and claim it. You need to visualize the prosperity that you want and believe in your heart that God will give it to you. Send us money to prove that you really believe that God's going to give it to you. And then God will rain down blessings and prosperity and riches and happiness on you. Entire streams of Christianity that mirror that same garbage from the world that are effectively telling people you can't ever be sad, you're not allowed to be sad, you're not allowed to be honest if you are sad. And in Luke 23, Jesus is saying it's okay to be sad. You should be sad. But be sad about the right things. Be sad about the things that make God sad. As much as the world tells us not to be sad, it's also very popular, trendy, to be hyper-aware, right? To be, to be attuned to everything around us. All of the microaggression power structures, right? Whatever the celebrities are, are tweeting about that they're telling us we should be sad about, and we all want to be sad about that too, and we want to make sure that everyone else knows how sad we are about those things as well. And God is saying, I don't want you to be sad about what the celebrities are telling you that you should be sad about. I don't want you to be sad about what the cable news personalities are telling you that you should be sad about. I want you to be sad about what God is sad about. What makes God sad, what grieves the Holy Spirit, is sin. God is grieved when his people sin against him and trample on his glory. God is grieved when people commit treason and and turn from him and worship other things instead of him. God is grieved when he has poured out his wrath on sinners because they have rejected him and refused to submit to him. So so Jesus is saying be sad but be sad about the right things. Guys when is, the last, when is the last time that we, that you, mourned and were deeply sad because of our sin? Not, not someone else's sin. We love to lament, right? We love to lament the sins that other people commit, the abortions that they've had, the racism that, that they are marked by, the immorality that they are guilty of, but not me. We look at culture, and those sins can bring us to tears. But when's the last time that we were brought to tears by our own sin, by our own pride, by our own selfishness, by our own stubbornness, our own greed and and jealousy, temper, by our own quickness to speak and slowness to listen? We get sad when our football team loses. We get sad when our political candidate loses. We get sad when we don't get our way. We get sad when people don't want, when people don't do what we want them to do. Get sad when gas prices go up. Get what, right? God is saying, don't, don't waste your sadness on those things. Be sad about the things that matter to God. And then your sadness move you and animate you to a godly response to those things. Be sad about your own sin and then let it move you, repent of it. Go to the person you've sinned against and, and repent to them. Go to the person that has sinned against you and forgive them. Confess your sin to a friend. Ask them to hold you accountable with it. Seek their counsel on how to see victory over it. Lean in to the body of Christ and invite their help so that you can repent of and and, and fight against sin in your life. Be sad about your sin and repent of it. Be sad about the judgment of God that you rightly deserve and let it bring humility. Don't walk with a swagger because you know all of the right things and believe all of the right things and and you think the world would be a better place if more people were more like you. Rather, be humble and acknowledge that you deserve judgment and punishment. The only reason you have not received judgment and punishment is because not, not because of your intellect and your spirituality and your righteousness, but because of Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. So be sad about sin. Be sad about the judgment of God that you rightly deserve. Be sad about the judgment of God that people that you know and love are going to experience if they don't trust in Christ. people in your life in your family in your your circles there are people who don't know Jesus and and they are going to stand before God and apart from Christ they are going to experience the judgment and wrath of God for their sin they're going to it's going to look a lot like verse 30 right here and that is sad and that should make us sad it should make us want to advocate for them. It should make us want to pray for them. It should make us want to share the gospel with them. It should make us want to invite them to read the Bible with us. people that you know who apart from Christ are going to experience the judgment of God forever and that should make us sad and it should move us to action on their behalf. So be sad. The, the Bible does not The Bible is not allergic to sadness. Christians should not be allergic to sadness. We should be sad, but we should be sad about the right thing. We should be sad about the things that make God sad. And then we should, in the power of the Holy Spirit, be moved to a godly response to those things. We live in a world that is marred by sin, by by our sin and by the sins of others. And because of that sin, God's judgment is coming. We have two choices. We can be confronted by the judgment of God, surprised by it, stopped dead in our tracks by it, like the people in verse 30. Or we can prepare for it by turning from our sin, trusting in Jesus, picking up our cross, following Jesus in discipleship, like we see Simon do in verse 26. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, there is nothing more terrible, nothing more defying than your righteous wrath against sin. And we are sinners standing directly in the path of your terrible, righteous wrath. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning confessing our sin, turning from our sin, trusting in Jesus to save us from our sin. Lord, we look to, we hold fast to you because you are our only hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.